you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 6. We just recently finished going through Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're almost ready to turn the corner. Our time in the Sermon on the Mount is drawing to an end. The single greatest message the Lord ever preached has proven to be a rich treasure trove of biblical wisdom and knowledge when it comes to kingdom conduct. Of late, though, through the the second half of chapter 6, Jesus has been teaching on the subject of wealth, and he devotes a significant amount of attention to this subject in the Sermon on the Mount. Much of his teaching throughout the Gospels has to do with wealth. Eleven of the 39 parables Jesus gave intersect the world of finance. It's almost like he knew how much money reveals about us. But in the Sermon on the Mount in particular, He's already given us several key admonitions relating to wealth. For example, chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Instead, verse 20, store them up in heaven. For, verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We learn that the location of your treasure reveals the location of your heart. Also down in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God in wealth. You can only have one true Lord over your life. We all know it's all too easy for wealth to effectively be that Lord, but it must not be that way. The rich are prone to idolize wealth and derive a false sense of security from it, but the poor are not immune from idolizing wealth. Just because they don't have it doesn't mean they can't seek it with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. The love of money can be just as big a snare to them, and the lack of wealth can lead to a false sense of insecurity. Where instead of trusting God to provide for their needs, they worry. That's what verses 25 through 34 were about. Verse 25 doesn't deal with abundance as much as just the basic provision of life. Food, water, clothing. It's not wrong to seek these things. We must, but not even these are we to seek first. When you come to Jesus as your Lord, he becomes your master. It just redefines all your priorities in life. Your relationship to wealth is one of them. Now you know God is your heavenly father who loves you, who cares for you. He will provide all that you need for your life. As for you, you are to seek first, verse 33, his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And so much of what Jesus teaches in this whole sermon arrests our attention because it it goes against the accepted norms of the world and even the church But we always must just let Jesus lead the way. How are we to live as citizens of his kingdom? Now, it's not my intention to preach through these passages again. We've we've done that. But I believe this subject of the Christian's relationship to wealth is worthy of a bit more attention and reflection. It's impossible for us to avoid interacting with wealth in this world. And Jesus does not teach that his disciples are all to become monks who take a a vow of poverty and live without possessions. It's not wrong to accumulate wealth or to store up provision. But when greed and covetousness and selfishness drive us, it's certainly going to lead us to gain and use wealth in unrighteous, unjust ways. Riches can be compared to a stick of dynamite. In the right circumstances, carefully handled and managed, it can be an amazing tool used for great good. But more often than not, it's mishandled and has devastating consequences. So how can we get wealth right? Christ's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is designed to challenge us, and it has done that. 
But it it led me to reflect even further. What, What else does the Lord expect from us when it comes to relating to wealth? More specifically, According to to God before us, what is the right way for us to gain wealth? What is the right way for us to use wealth? How are we prone to get these very wrong? These are a few additional questions I believe need answering, especially since wealth is just a huge part of our daily lives, even more so than it was in Christ's day. So before moving on in the Sermon on the Mount, I wanted to return just springboard off of the Lord's teaching here in Matthew 6, to discover a bit further what scripture says about our relationship to wealth as disciples living in a fallen world. And more specifically, since we live in the most affluent country ever, I think it's very important for us to know exactly how God expects us to gain wealth, how he expects us to use wealth. There is definitely a right and a wrong way to do both. So we'd better figure that out. And again, these are no small subjects. We're going to spend the majority of our lives working to essentially gain a form of wealth, are we not? And then just about every single day, I bet you use wealth or think about it. Finance is built into the fabric of our daily lives. And despite Jesus just telling us in the previous passage not to worry, I think most would probably be forced to admit that money is the number one source of their worry and conflict, stress, trouble, We're all prone to go with the flow of our culture concerning how to relate to wealth. But what do you think the Lord would say about that? Do you really think America espouses the right way to gain and use wealth? Now, we want to hear from the Lord throughout his word in regards to what that should look like. Because we need to get this massive part of our lives right. Again, as his disciples living in a fallen world. So that's what we aim to do here for a bit of a an additional sermon. Today, I want us to focus first on this subject, how God expects us to gain wealth. The first side of that equation, how God expects us to gain wealth, and he does. It's not wrong for us to gain wealth, and by wealth, we're simply meaning having more than you need to survive, which would make, I think, all of us wealthy. This world is so bountiful, most people are going to have some form of wealth, and that's, that's not wrong by itself. Just the opposite. God designed and made this world to provide for us. He planned for us to have all that we would ever need from from the planet. And we we get it by means of what? The answer is work. And so this is mostly going to be a reflection on work. How God expects us to gain wealth. Reading Matthew 6, you make it the impression that since the Lord promises God will care for our every need that You don't need to work. But no, we learn that is not the case. God is sovereign over the ends. He's also sovereign over the means. And the means of his provision for us is our work. But that is something I want to revisit and and further establish and want to explore here that the sanctity of work, but also how we get it wrong. And it leads to a lot of trouble and ruin. So we're going to go back all the way to beginning. You can turn back to Genesis chapter 1 for a bit of reflection. Now, here's the thing. God made this world big. Very big. It's huge, especially when you consider it originally started off with just two people. The size of the planet is way overkill for just two people. (laughs) But God knew that man would multiply over the face of the earth. 
So he had created a planet with enough natural resources to sustain a vast amount of human life. And then God gave mankind authority over the world to subdue it and use it. And you can recall man's first and foremost creation mandate, Genesis 1, 28. It's speaking to that man and woman. It says, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So God makes this huge world that contains more than we could ever need, not just to survive, but to thrive. And it was God's design for people to get all they needed from the land. He did not create a world in which man's every need would be supernaturally supplied from heaven. Our provision was not going to be handed to us on a silver platter. Rather, God intended for man to get it by work. So from your basic provision to abundance, which is wealth, God originally expected us to work for it. And his providence and all the systems he created in nature would assure we would have everything we needed. But that doesn't mean we can be inactive. We still have to work. And it has been this way from the beginning before the fall, Genesis 2. This takes us back to the sixth day, and you can look at verse 5. It says, Now, no shrub in the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Then down in verse 15, it says later, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And the verb cultivate just literally means to work, to labor, to toil. Man was going to have to work the ground for it to yield its produce. Now, before the fall, of course, that work would not have been burdensome. Before the curse, that work would have been good and fulfilling, satisfying, productive. Pretty much the opposite of how a lot of people associate work today but the ground would have readily yielded its fruit. There would have been no drought, no flood, no weeds, no blight. I mean, you scatter seed, you get a 100% germination rate. Everything grows like weeds grow today. It would have been a gardener's dream. But all the provision man could ever need would come from the ground and be attained by work. But beyond basic provision, you even get hints that God intended for man to have an abundance, i.e. wealth. His perfect world was created not just full of plants, but it also had within it precious metals and stones. Look down at verses 11 and 12 of Genesis 2. It speaks of these rivers that flowed out of, the, yeah, out of Eden into other lands. It's this curious couple of verses that you probably read and ignore, but verse 11, speaking of the river, it says the name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bedellum and the onyx stone are there. Why why does it mention that? If Adam and Eve did not fall, you get the impression that man would have quickly learned to extract more of the world's resources and use them for human flourishing, for beauty, for enjoyment, with seemingly enough for all. I can't imagine the economy of the world before the fall to be driven by scarcity like like it is today. God made a world with enough for all to enjoy, and man was to gain that provision, and even beyond provision, how? Through work. He's just going to work. 
Now, of course, we know all that changed after the fall, or at least a lot of that changed after the fall. The fall did not make it impossible for man to derive provision and even wealth from the ground, but it did make it very hard. You can go to Genesis 3. This is after Adam and Eve's fall into sin. And God curses them for his disobedience. And his curse on Adam especially would have major implications for work. Because the curse on Adam really was a curse on the ground. Look at Genesis 3, 17 through 19. It's God cursing. He says, then to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken. For your dust. And to dust you shall return. And we know that God had a plan of redemption made from eternity past that he was going to work out. Which is why Adam and Eve did not physically die on the day in which they rebelled. But short of physical death, the most effective way God could curse Adam and man was by cursing the ground. In fact, the Hebrew word for ground is Adamah. It's a, a play on words with Adam, Adam. Adam was taken from the Adamah, the ground. Man came from the ground. God formed him from the dust. Man derives his ongoing life from the ground. And now who's going to have to sweat, toil, and work the ground just to scrape out an existence, to try and survive now in a harsh world. And even then, it's going to be futile because despite his best efforts, he's eventually going to go back to the ground. He's going to return to the dust. But you can see how most of God's curse on the man was a curse on the planet. Creation supernaturally changed because of this curse as sin was introduced into the world. Now, man would have to contend with things like thorns and thistles, things like drought and famine, flood and fire. The planet's ability to produce for all was going to be affected. Man could labor endlessly all year long, gather enough provision, even gather abundance, and then just lose it all overnight because of some creation curse. But it's not just creation that man would now have to deal with. He would also have to deal with other people. As sin and selfishness came to rule in man's heart, he would not think twice about taking what he needs or wants from others, using others to survive or get ahead. This world still has enough resources to go around, but after the fall, a rich, poor dynamic would begin. It's not inherently evil to be rich, to flourish, to have an abundance of provision and wealth from the ground, But after the fall, now that man thinks greed is good, that wealth is quite often going to be gained and used in very unrighteous and unjust ways. And unfortunately, this this is still the world we live in. We, We don't live in Eden. We live after, waiting for a future city to come. But still, creation is still cursed, longing for its redemption, and and so are we. The Savior Christ has come. He's reconciled our souls to God, paid for our sins. We're secured by faith in him. But we too still await the redemption of our bodies, that the fullness of our salvation, 
And so now we're, we're left, even after salvation, we're left to live out our days in this world according to God's hidden purposes. There's never a call for us to escape the world, but to live in it, as we've learned, as salt and light. So now we ask then, does, God, does our salvation change how God expects us to gain provision and wealth from the ground? We've learned from Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, especially we, we have some special promises that God, he's now our heavenly father. He cares for us more than anything. And so just as God feeds the birds and clothes the flowers, he cares for you vastly more. He'll care for your needs. That for his people, he will care for your needs. You just need to seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. All will be added to you as, as we learned. But if you recall, we also learned how God ordinarily works through ordinary means. It's only on rare occasion that God supernaturally, outside the bounds of nature, provided for the needs of his people. Like when he caused manna to come down for Israel from heaven. Usually, though, God works providentially through secondary means. And when it comes to us gaining provision or wealth, the means of God providing for us is our own work. It's still our work. We still have to work. God cares for the birds, but they still have to fly out, hunt, and gather. His providence and goodness assures they will find what they need, as he does for us. But that, all that goes to say, we too must still work and toil. We have not escaped, even in salvation yet, we've not escaped the curse, uh, the need to work the ground by sweat to drive and just uh, live, survive, drive life. We trust God to increase, but we must still work. So how does God expect us to gain wealth from just basic provision to more than provision? The answer still is work. Countless Proverbs, for example, confirm this. Proverbs 14.23 says, In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Proverbs 28.19 says, He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. There's also one key New Testament verse that speaks on this. 2 Thessalonians 3. You can, you can flip there if you want to follow along. 2 Thessalonians 3. Here's where Paul is calling on the church to follow his example. What kind of example? He says in verse 7, it's one of hard work. And he mentions how he did not act, he says, in an undisciplined manner before them. But he mentions... And says, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship. We kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. The, the context here is Paul, as an apostle, visiting the churches. He had the right not to work, but to derive his sustenance and needs from the churches. They should have supported him. But he willingly forsook that right just to give them a, an example of diligence. Then he makes this point in verses 10 through 12 of 2 Thessalonians 3. He says this, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion, and eat their own bread. 
For some reason, idleness was plaguing the Thessalonian church. They, they appeared busy, but, but they weren't doing anything. Verse 11 has a play on words. It, it says they, they were doing everything, everywhere, but doing nothing. And Paul's instructions for them are, are very clear. It's just work. You want to eat? You have to work. Work to eat. If you don't work, you shouldn't eat. Eat your own bread by the labor of your own hands. If anyone is unwilling to work, he should not eat. Now, this is broadly speaking. He addresses those who are unwilling to work. He is not addressing those who are unable to work. Many people are unable because of the curse. Right? The ground is cursed. It does not always yield up its produce. And our bodies are cursed. They break down. They fail. Some are born unable to work. There are many people in the world still who they don't have access to daily bread and their idleness is not to blame. Their laziness is not to blame. That The curse is to blame. The conditions of this world are going to hit people differently. We will most definitely talk later about how to relate to such people. But for now, that the general principle stands and it holds true even for believers that God expects us to work. Work is hard, but it is noble. We must work to gain basic provision for ourselves and our families, and we must even work to gain abundance. Now, speaking of abundance, even in a fallen world, as you work, some will prosper. For one reason or another, some are going to attain more than their daily bread. They'll gain more than they need to survive. They're going to start to have an abundance. We call that wealth. They're going to amass wealth. In the ancient world, just that basic quest for survival, for sustenance was pretty continual. But that's not really the case today, especially in our nation. And there, there might be a small minority who are still struggling with provision, but I think most have wealth, are beyond just daily bread, and you have way more than you could need to survive. Almost everyone in America has some form of wealth. That doesn't mean you're filthy rich, but you have more then you need to survive. If you drove here in a car this morning, if you have a cell phone in your pocket this morning, you have wealth. Now, I know that might not actually be everyone. There's still some who, and we'll talk about them later, who don't. But I think especially in America, we we need to talk more about wealth than just provision. Biblically, it's, it's not inherently wrong to amass wealth. There's a right and wrong way to go about that. We'll see shortly, but... It's not sinful to have an abundance. It's not wrong to provide for your future. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 famously says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. As you labor diligently and prosper, you might have provision and wealth built up for years to come. And there are many biblical examples showing us that just the the condition of having wealth is not evil in and of itself. From Job to Abraham to David, Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia, and the New Testament. They all materially prospered the right way with God's favor behind them. Now, to be sure, wealth is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. You cannot make a strict correlation between the two. But 
Amassing wealth by itself is not inherently evil. Now, that being said, it can turn evil very, very quick. This is why Jesus said it is very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. But he said it's very difficult, extremely difficult. Given how wealth can bring the worst out of our hearts and draw us away from God, you cannot serve God in wealth, but wealth so readily tempts what's in our flesh. And so there definitely is a wrong way to view wealth and to use wealth that dishonors God and harms those around you. We'll see more of that next week. But first today, we're really just learning about how God expects us to gain wealth on the front end. And so I want us to now consider some of the ways that goes wrong. How we can get that wrong with terrible consequences. I mean, broadly speaking, we're supposed to gain wealth through work, both provision and even abundance. But when you get, when you get that wrong, it's going to have a lot of consequences. It will invite ruin and suffering in your life, even in society, and those around you. Work is just a dominant part of our lives, or at least it's supposed to be. Many people are going to work full-time for 50 years of their lives, you know, from 18 to 68, however much they bump the retirement age. It's pretty much 50 years of your life you're going to work full-time. And of that time, 35% of your waking hours are going to be spent at work. Many people will spend vastly more time at work than with their families. So obviously, if you get this part of life wrong, you have a big problem on your hands. And it's going to have devastating consequences. We want to avoid that. We're, we're called to avoid that as disciples of Christ. And so how can we avoid that? How, how are we prone to get work wrong. So now we're going to consider three, three big ways we can get work wrong. And thereby, the, the wrong ways to gain wealth and live in God's world. So the first one is sloth. Sloth. Basically here, don't repeat the error of the Thessalonian church, which was sloth. What is sloth? It, it's laziness. It is idleness, a refusal to work. There are some religions where the holy men, they just sit around idle all day and beg. They don't work. That is not biblical Christianity. Why is idleness wrong? Well, simply put, it is not God's will for our lives. Jesus now is our Lord, our master. Now, our master has gone away. He's left us as stewards. And until he returns, he wants us to steward our lives, our time, our talents for him, for his kingdom, for his glory, and for the good of others. Laziness just does not factor into that equation. Just as Jesus rebuked, it says, the wicked, lazy servant who refused to work in the parable of the talents. So today, those who are lazy, refuse to work, they're going to bear that reproach, the Lord's rebuke. No, instead now, being transformed by grace through faith in Christ. It it should change your desires. Now, you should want to be a faithful steward of your life, your time, not just your money, just your whole life, to the Lord, living for him, living to please him. That is going to change how you view work, right? It should. Listen to an interesting verse, Ephesians 4, 28, where he's talking about how salvation changes us and changes our lives. Ephesians 4.28, 
He says, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Then he says, so that he will have something to share with the one who is in need. The opposite, opposite of theft is generosity. Now, it's not always the case, but often it is the lazy who resort to theft. They're unwilling to labor, but they still want nice things. They still want basic provision. They still want nice things. They aim to get it. You might say that the easy way, just take it from others. Take the fruit of other people's labor. But you know how that dishonors God and just harms other people. Maybe such were some of you. But when you come to Christ, you're born again. You you want to do what is right because you love the Lord who, who gave himself up for you. You want to be a blessing to others. And so we're told to work hard, perform with your hands what is good. And he says, as you prosper, right, as you gain wealth, you'll actually have enough to help others who are in need, chiefly those who aren't able to work. So far from it being wrong for Christians to gain wealth, God God expects us to work and gain wealth. That, for one, we might take care of ourselves and our families because if anyone does not provide for his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, says Paul in 1 Timothy 5.8. That's what he says. Makes you worse than an unbeliever because even they do that. So we have to labor to provide for our own and the Lord also expects us to gain wealth that we might have more than we need. We'll see next week. One of the main reasons is to help those who have less than they need by no fault of their own. Uh, again, we'll learn more about the right use of wealth next week. But overall here, when it comes to sloth, you have to beware making an idol out of comfort. Rest is a gift from God. He labored six days, rested on the seventh. He gave us a pattern of rest. But so many of our sins consist of taking the good gifts God has given to us and elevating them to first place where we seek them first. And in a hard, fallen world, it is very easy to do that with rest, comfort, and leisure. We feel entitled to it. Rest has a proper place, but it can easily become an idol that captures us uh, even to the exclusion of work. Such idleness has consequences, though. You're going to invite ruin and poverty in your life. Proverbs 20, verse 13 says, Do not love sleep, or you will become poor. Proverbs 19, 15, Laziness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle man will suffer hunger. I mean, laziness, it's harmful to yourself and to others. Because your family or society are left to pick up the tab of your unwillingness to work. So Proverbs 20 verse 4 says, The sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. And this is why the Apostle Paul had such harsh words for those unwilling to work. The one who's not willing to work should not eat. And so the 30-year-old who's still living with his parents is unwilling to work, but just wants to play video games all day, is just asking for ruin and poverty and hardship in his life. It's no secret that each passing generation is becoming more and more entitled in this country. 
people have been given so many handouts, they're starting to believe they're entitled to them. We're entitled to a life of leisure 24-7. But to the contrary, we, we especially should still live up to the Protestant work ethic we've inherited. Right? Remember that thing? It's, it's dying out, but the Protestants and the Reformers, they, they rightly understood the nobility of work. They saw how the common man, who isn't clergy, still can glorify God just as much as the clergy by their vocation, through diligence and discipline. They, they saw work as part of the stewardship God has given us to provide for ourselves, our families, and our neighbor in need. And Christians today should have the same high view of work. So beware that the perils of sloth, it's one way to get work drastically wrong. Now, there's a second way. He wants to look at the other side of it, and that would be overwork. Overwork. I mean, the other end of the spectrum on getting work wrong can be just as damaging to self, society, and others. There are some who are they're, they're compulsive workers. They work literally too much. They don't adequately, adequately rest and reserve time for other things. Scripture gives us a pattern, a rhythm of work, rest, work, rest. But for some people, it's work and then work, work and then more work. And they leave little time for anything else. We have a word for it today is workaholism. What drives such workaholism? It could be several things. I think it's rare that someone makes an idol out of actual labor, although possible. I think more have made an idol out of what that labor gets them. So what does it get them? For most, it's money. But they just love money. A love of money has captured their heart and all it affords. They want more stuff. They want nicer cars. They want bigger houses. And and greed and covetousness are the driving forces behind their work because they're convinced they need more to be happy, to be fulfilled. For others, labor buys them security. They want to feel safe. In an uncertain world of stock market crashes and emergency room visits, the only way such people can feel peace of mind is if they have a hefty savings account and a nice nest egg. It's not wrong to save, but some make an idol out of security. And work, labor, feeds that idol. And there there are some who work just because they're trying to escape home. When home life is hard, be it with your spouse or your kids, even hard work is easier than going home. And it can be a bitter thought, but some people want to avoid the conflict and trouble found in the home and work provides a socially acceptable excuse, even a, a noble excuse. Oh, you're just working hard. Now you might wonder, like, what's the big deal? Okay, what if, so what if a person wants to work 60, 70 hours a week all the time? Didn't we just extol the Protestant work ethic? Well, yeah, we did. But, you know, the Protestants also understood that God wants us to do other things than just work. It's not the only thing he tells us to do. We must reserve time and energy for many other duties that the Lord has given to us. Like what? Well, one big one is family. More important than building wealth is loving your spouse and shepherding your kids. With kids especially, you have a short window to train them up in the way they should go. And that's not really going to happen if you're married 
to your job. Yeah, you may work hard and you may say you're doing it for them because you want what's best for them. How do you define what is best for them? Is it that they have the latest iPhone like everyone else? That you have the latest iPhone like everyone else? Or that, that what's best for them is they have parents who love them, who spend quality and quantity time with them, who deeply implant the word of God into their lives? Just examine yourself. Don't let the love of money or stuff lead you to forsake your family will only lead you to regret 20 years from now, guaranteed. Now, secondly, God also wants us to reserve time for worship, right? Yeah, you are to glorify God in all you do, but we're talking about the special set-aside corporate worship of the local church. God commands us to assemble with other believers, to fellowship with the saints. The church has been meeting on the Lord's Day since the beginning, and Those meetings are often forsaken, though, on the altar of work. To the overworker, church attendance and involvement, those are readily abandoned for work. Just, I got to work more. Or because they need to rest because of all the other work they've done. So rest gets the next uh, peg on the ladder. But seeing how the Lord made the church to be one of the vital aspects of our spiritual walk, those who forsake the church because of work, they're going to find spiritual ruin. Now, we're not saying it's a sin to work on Sundays. It's not. Sunday has not become the new Sabbath for the new covenant church. That's not the case biblically. And so essential workers who take a periodic shift on Sunday, they're not sinning. They're not doing anything wrong. The one who is seeking God's kingdom first, though, will still evidence a zeal in pursuing the fellowship. Yeah, they might have to miss a few Sundays, but, you know, the church is more than a Sunday morning event. So they're going to still seek and find ample ways to serve and get involved. And you wouldn't even notice the difference because they're so, they're such a part of the church. But the same cannot be said of the one who's really seeking first work or money, or success, or security, or whatever. You would find little evidence in their lives that they're seeking first the kingdom. Where's the evidence? In all their work, they're certainly chasing something, but it just has nothing to do with the things of the Lord. But with priorities that out of order, you can't expect God to bless that work. He will not bless that work. He will frustrate that work. Look, work matters a lot to God, but his will is clear. You also need time for your family, for the fellowship. The home and the church must have a balanced place with the workplace, all in balance. And really, you add a fourth into that balance of rest. As we said, God himself established a pattern of work and then rest. Work, six days, and then rest. And we don't have a Sabbath mandate in the church, but the principle of work and rest is prevalent everywhere. When you find balanced rest from your labor, you're showing there's more to life than just working and saving. When you rest, when you find time to rest, you are rebuking covetousness and greed. You're showing there's more to life than just getting more money and spending money. And rest also expresses faith because you're you're trusting God to care for your needs. The overworker often has a type of anxiety where they feel like if they don't work, then they're going to starve. They're not going to survive. Is that really true, though? That Does not God care for you more than birds and flowers? He supplies their needs. 
Is the problem really, as Jesus said in Matthew 6.30, you have little faith. You have little faith. You have to learn to trust God with your actual needs. Our culture does not make this easy. American life is like a rat race. So many people are competing to get ahead. And then you have advertising making you feel like you're in the wrong for not having the next best thing. And then California, especially the temptation is real. Because if mother and father don't work themselves to death, will you ever own a home? But you have to stop and ask yourself, what what really matters more in the long run? A bigger house or a godly home? Owning a house or a home that is pleasing to the Lord? What's more valuable in 10 years, in 20 years, in eternity? Just beware the desire to get rich. It's filled with many snares, as 1 Timothy 6, 9 says. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And you can avoid that ruin and destruction by working hard unto the Lord and then knowing when it's time not to work. Because there is a time, there are a lot of times when you should not work. Beware overwork. Our culture needs to hear this one especially. Now there's a last one we want to go through with our remaining time. A third way to get work wrong. Unjust gain. Unjust gain. Now God expects us to gain wealth in a right way, but not unjustly. Likewise, driven by greed, some love money so much that they're willing to take advantage of others to get it. This can happen in in many different ways. Exploitation, force, slavery, corruption, theft. Just think how much wealth has been gained by means of unrighteousness throughout all world history. It's everywhere. It is not just America. Unjust gain has marked every culture of every age because just as creation has fallen, so is man's heart. And man's heart now is characterized by selfishness. And so it doesn't really matter what God wants or what's best for others. What's best for me? That's the ruling force you will gain often unjustly. And by unjust means, I mean it works. Men get rich, filthy rich. But it would be a mistake to think them blessed. They are not blessed. They are cursed. Their riches will testify against them. You can turn now to James 5. We're looking at many passages this morning. But James 5, a few weeks ago in the Sermon on the Mount, we made reference to Christ's half-brother James, what he says about the rich, his diatribe against the rich. And I think it's only fitting to read that again. He's not just talking about the rich, because it's not inherently wrong to be rich. He's talking about those who have gained their riches unjustly. Listen to what he says again about them. It's James 5, 1 through 6. It's a, it's a stunning condemnation. James 5, 1. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It's in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. 
And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. You can see here, though, that the issue is not just the riches. There's a righteous way to amass and use wealth. But theirs was an unjust gain which came on the backs of all their laborers, the people under them, whom they defrauded and oppressed. And in reality, they had plenty of money to pay their laborers well. But they withheld that. Why? For for their own sake. They wanted to spend it all on their pleasures. They were feeding their lusts. But James says that they're just fattening themselves like cattle before the slaughter. And such treatment of workers has always been against God's will. We find many directives for dealing justly in God's Old Testament law. Leviticus 19.13, for example. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. God is a God of perfect justice. He hates injustice, especially when the rich and the powerful take advantage of the poor and the weak. And he reserves harsh words of judgment for those who do so. And sadly, even God's people are not immune to gaining wealth unjustly. Just because greed, it's still part of our flesh. It runs deep in our flesh. Israel was strictly forbidden from all of this, but they gave into it time and time again. And so most often you find that the message of the prophets to Israel was one of rebuke for their unjust gain. A notable example of this is Amos chapter 5. You can turn there if you can find it. Amos chapter 5. And what did their unjust gain look like? I'm going to read it now for the sake of time. But Amos 5.11 says, At the rich, they imposed heavy rent on the poor and exacted a tribute of grain from them. And meanwhile, the rich lived in houses of well-hewn stone. So the picture is that the the rich and powerful were running the nation like, like the mafia. They were charging fees, charging tribute, charging interest. And meanwhile, they were living large. And when people couldn't pay in their racket, Amos 2.6 says they would sell them into slavery. Also, Amos 5.12, the prophet says, For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. Justice was only available to the highest bidder. The poor and the needy, they would come to the city gates. That's where judgments would take place, the city gates. But they would find no justice because the rich could buy the law. They could bend the arm of the law in their favor favor with their money. Just the cruelty with which the rich treated the poor rose up to God and put a foul stench in his nose. And their hypocrisy was so great, it disqualified all of their worship. All their worship meant nothing to the Lord because of this sin in their heart. So Amos says in verse 21, chapter 5, he says, I hate I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But, verse 24, let 
justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This still holds true today. God is still a God of justice. His people are to reflect his justice. There is a right and a wrong way to earn wealth, to conduct a business, to manage workers. Those who go the wrong way and resort to an unjust gain, they give a black eye to God's name. They invite his curse and they harm others. And not everyone here may be in this position. You may not be an employer, but there are some, maybe even many, who, who own businesses, who manage workers, who have employees. And you especially are called to reflect God and treat those under you with justice and fairness. Just like Colossians 4.1 says to, to the master, the Lord. Remember, you too have a master in heaven. So grant those under you. It says fairness and justice. Just you're treating others the way you'd want them to treat you. And certainly not taking advantage of those under your power for what, a few extra bucks, more a, a jet ski? What, what are you going to do? Now, I know that today, any mention of social justice can seem tainted since critical race theory and the social gospel have poisoned the well of the discussion with their false teaching. But that doesn't mean we as the church should turn a blind eye to the very real social injustices found in in every nation under the sun. I mean, dishonest and unjust gain, they're still rampant. They contribute greatly to human suffering around the world. And the true church should identify and oppose it at every turn. Because we have the only hope for change. And no, Marxism is not the answer to the perils of capitalism. No system is the answer. Because the problem is the greed that reigns in the fallen heart. Any system will be corrupted. The only thing that's going to change that is the gospel. Not the social gospel, the gospel gospel. The real gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. It's only when people repent and believe and yield to the good news of Christ who died on the cross and rose from the dead to pay for our sins, to make us new. It's only when people submit to that gospel that they're transformed and their hearts change from being fundamentally greedy to fundamentally generous. They change from being me-focused to others-focused, self-glorifying to God-glorifying. That's the only hope for real lasting change. So we have to keep preaching and representing the gospel in a dark world. That's the only hope. And we as the church have to be living out the implications of the gospel. I mean, far be it from us to resort to unjust gain, but to get ahead at the expense of others, we, we have to be different. We need the word of God to recalibrate our own hearts and wrench out the love of money and just replace it with just the love of God, the love of others. As we live in this world, we're going to interact with wealth probably every day. And how we go about gaining it is a huge deal. It's just one of the most consuming parts of our lives. So let us learn this morning, there is a way to do that that's compatible with seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness. We must always go that way. That Jesus said God will care for your every need is not an endorsement of sloth. We still have to work hard to provide for ourselves and others. But we've learned there's more to life than work, than money, possessions. And so as we seek first his kingdom, we must not give in to overwork, reserving time for family, for worship, for rest. 
And no matter what, we can never justify resorting to sin or injustice to get ahead, to gain. And far be it from us. Instead, God expects us to gain wealth for ourselves and others by work. Work that is diligent, disciplined, dignified. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 tells us, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you. That's what we must do. As you work like this, you, you may prosper. You may find that God prospers the labor of your hands. You might find an abundance, a wealth in this world, but just ensure you are gaining that wealth in such a way that, that pleases God and blesses others. And then when you get that wealth, now it's time to use it in a way that likewise pleases God and blesses others. It is actually God's intention for us to gain wealth because not everyone has the means of working. He wants us to likewise use what we gain for his kingdom, for his purposes. What does that look like? How are we now to use the wealth we have received? Well, that's what we're going to come back and discover next week. Maybe a more important message, how God expects us to use wealth. We need to hear that, especially in our day as well. So we'll wait upon you for next week. Let's finish in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning as we sit under it and your teaching, your wisdom you've given to us. We, we need it to open our hearts. Living in such a world, such a, a, a nation with such wealth and affluence can be a great blessing and comes with many comforts and advantages. And we can praise you for, for all of that. Every good thing, every good gift is to be received with thankfulness from God above. We, we thank you for how you have provided our needs and then some. We, we can worship, but since that greed and covetousness, selfishness still runs deep in our flesh, we must be on guard and be aware of any form of the love of money. We can so easily be allured and tempted away from pursuing first your kingdom and your righteousness. May it never be for us, from us, but still we need your word to correct us. And that's what it does this morning. It's going to cut all of us open to examine how we relate to wealth. Here, how we gain it. Working too much, too little, unjustly. We have to be on guard against getting this huge part of our lives wrong. I pray you equip us this morning and convict us by your spirit to get it right. We, we want to honor you and the world you've given us to steward. Our lives, our time and money you've given us to steward. For our master is returning. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And may we not be the, the wicked or the unjust or the lazy servant. So convict us, compel us to work with our hands, to be fulfilled, and to help others around us. We long to hear more about that. But for the meantime, just help us to get work right. That we can do it in such a way that is truly glorifying to you. So be with us in this conviction. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.